Ben Burgess. Ben, thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so I'm going to run through a couple features of your CV. Tell me if I'm missing anything. You are a columnist at Jacobin. You are the host of your own podcast called uh, Give Them an Argument, which is a title taken from one of your books published by Zero. Mm -hmm. um, you're also the co-host of a, another podcast called Dead Pundit Society. You teach philosophy. Yes at uh, Georgia State, and you are author of, most recently, a book by, uh, on Christopher Hitchens called uh, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters, and then another one called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. So am I missing anything? Um, yeah, I mean, so the, yeah, Dead Pundit Society has been going on for a little while, and, uh, and yeah, I'm at Morehouse now, not Georgia State, but whatever. Those are details. Everything else is right. Gotcha. Okay. So um, you're fast becoming, if not already, one of the most um, you know, recognizable voices on the social democratic socials left in America. And mm. one of the things that I really appreciate about your work and that you um, go into a lot in your Canceling Comedians book is mm. you seem to be very aware of and care about the way that your arguments, your behavior, your ideas, your policy proposals come off to everyday working people who may not mm -hmm. be on the left already. Um, in other mm -hmm. words, you seem to uh, care about the idea that you might need to persuade people to your side. Um, and it seems that many of the activists of our generation and on the left right now mm -hmm. don't seem to really have wrapped their heads around the importance of that. So. Um, and a lot of what's in your book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, addresses that. So let's kind of start there. What, what do you think is going on with people um, on the left who are kind of on our team, but seem to be kind of ruining it in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I think there may be a couple things going on. Uh, the one that I emphasize in the book is that I think that, um, you know, the any kind of perspective to the left of just regular American liberalism has been like way out of the political wilderness for a very long time. Uh, that certainly, you know, I'm old enough to, uh, to remember um, like the, uh, the era at the, you know, right after the end of the cold war, you know, in the nineties and two thousands um, where, you know, if you, if you called yourself a socialist, I mean, people wouldn't even get mad at that. That was just like an eccentricity. Like that's, uh, the, you know, that was, um, that was so outside of the, uh, the norm that um, even if you think about things like um, some of the big, um, some of the big protests that, you know, that famously happened like the, at the WTO, the World Trade Organization Summit in Seattle, or uh, even Occupy Wall Street in 2011, um, that none of that really had, um, you know, like none of that was really associated with, with anything, you know, like nobody was really using the S word, right, in, in any of those contexts. Uh, and, you know, everybody was just sort of a vague anti-corporate progressive. Uh, and even that perspective was pretty fringe. 
Um, a lot of those things that I just mentioned, you know, were kind of punchlines in mainstream American political culture. Uh, or like, I don't know, I think about like the Nader campaigns in 2000 and, you know, 2004. Um, you know, Ralph Nader is somebody who was a you know, hugely important and admired, uh, you know, consumer uh, rights crusader from the late 20th century. And, uh, and he, you know, and, and he became just seen as this like, just fringe, like, like lunatic or something. Cause, cause he, uh, uh, cause, cause he ran against Bush and Gore in 2000 and Bush and Kerry in 2004. Uh, and even he, if you really paid close attention, I mean, what he was actually saying was like, well, to the right of like the, the, you know, 2016 or 2020 Bernie platform, for example. Right. So, um, that's you know things have changed a lot in a in a good way uh that uh as as much as many disappointing things as ha- have happened in the last few years you know like we're, we're we are actually even now in a way way better position than than in like you know 2015 certainly um but i think because people have been out of the wilderness for so long there i think a lot of people on the left and you know this gets sort of transmitted intergenerationally um have trouble taking seriously the idea that we could actually be successful uh they're just kind of used to thinking of you know of radical politics just as uh, as a sort of protest right against uh, against the status quo as, as just a, a kind of way of standing up and being counted and saying i don't you know i don't approve of any of this so like, you know, there's never, you know, I love Noam Chomsky, but like you never read a Chomsky book and, you know, get to, you know, get to page, you know, 97 and see him say, okay, well, just to be clear, if there was like a socialist government that was in power in the United States, this is how, this is how I think it should solve this foreign policy problem I'm talking about, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is, is understandable, I think, given the decades in which he was formed, because that would have just sounded kind of goofy. It's like saying, you know, I don't know. Well, here's what I'll do when I'm in per the universe, right? It's like, what's the point? But the problem with that is that I think people hold on to a lot of bad habits, even after the political terrain starts to change uh, for the better. And, and I think in particular, I mean, certainly every time I make the mistake of logging onto Twitter, I mean, I, I see people, um, doing all of this like arguing about who is and isn't like a real leftist whatever that means and it it just sort of seems like the mindset is let's guard the boundaries of the clubhouse and make sure that the the wrong people don't get in which makes zero sense if it's actually a project to change material conditions in the real world you know that you should want to be anybody who's slightly ambiguous or, you know, could go your way, right. You know, you should, you should be wanted to be uh, roll out the red carpet and be as welcoming as, as humanly possible. But it does make a twisted kind of sense. If you think all you're really doing is lodging this kind of symbolic protest against the many injustices that surround you, because yeah, I mean, why, uh, why water down the content of that protest, you know, by, uh, by letting in the, uh, the wrong people. I mean, if all that's going on, is just sort of showing that, well, you're a good person. You don't approve of any of this stuff. Um, then sort of spending all of your time proving that you are a good person and testing whether other people are and all of that stuff, unfortunately, 
you know, unfortunately does start to make a lot of sense. I don't think that's the only thing that's going on there, but I think that it is one part of it. Yeah, in uh, so the, the political wilderness um, term you use, I think it's analogous to what you say in the book, uh, what you call the pathologies of powerlessness, right? So it's just getting used, getting too accustomed to and not having had uh, any positions of power, not having been in charge. Um, I saw a lot of parallels with your book and a book that came out a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if you heard of it. It was written by Mark Lilla called uh, The Once and Future Liberal. Mm, no, I don't um, know that book. And um, it, it, it was an extension of an essay he wrote in uh, the New York Times right after Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. And the title was something like The End of Identity Liberalism. And in that book, it's similar to yours in a couple of ways. One, he says, um, you know, this is a book for liberals. And I think he kind of means broadly anyone yeah. left to center. And, uh, and you, you, know, you say as well, you're trying to convince you know, your friends and comrades to stop acting this way because you don't want to lose. And he says the same kind of thing. He says, um, you know, if you want uh, to protect the people that you claim you want to protect, minorities and working class and so on, then you need political power and you need to not keep losing. Um, mm-hmm. And so you guys kind of have a similar uh, argument there in that um, you're sort of uh, scolding people on your team in a constructive way about, um, you know, some of the things that they might be doing that's mm-hmm. hindering the, uh, the project of actually getting power. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I haven't I, I haven't read that book, but I looked it up while you're talking. Um, so let, let's talk about um, some other things that are causing this kind of um, mm. you know, the symbolic performativity of politics that you talk about. So there's kind of romantic element to it as well, where it's sort of just mm. a kind of personal expression. And yeah. you've got this quote by Kant at the very end, which I uh, really struck me because I well, first, I'd never read it before, but also because, you know, we think of Kant as like a, I guess, more of a quintessential enlightenment thinker, mm-hmm. right? And enlightenment is more, I guess, if we're going to simplify, as much more to do with uh, championing utility, right? But mm-hmm. here, um, you say, or Kant says in uh, Groundwork for Metaphysics of Morals, a good will is good, not because of what it affects or accomplishes, not because of its fitness to attain some intended end, but good just by its willing i.e. in itself, even if it accomplished nothing, it would still shine like a jewel as something that has full worth in itself. So to me, that's a, a highly romantic uh, mm-hmm. statement, right? Because the idea there is it's good for its own sake, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that, you know, art is supposed to be good for art's sake. So there, there's a kind of romantic view there. Um, but it, it, so it might be okay if we take that view with respect to, uh, yeah, art, for example. But um, if it's in politics, it doesn't seem to work as well. Yeah. So, I mean, Kant is, is just talking about, you know, morality and in general there. Right. And he, he is um, kind of the opposite of, uh, of utilitarian as that, as that quote, you know, I think makes, um, makes very clear. Uh, In fact, to the point that, you know, he uh, bites some pretty amazing bullets. Like um, they, there's a, uh, so there's a French philosopher exists at the same time, Benjamin Constant, who, who pointed out in something he wrote about uh, that Kant's book, the Groundwork of the Metaphysics and Morals, uh, that, well, hold on, Kant says that uh, morality is just about following the categorical imperative and uh, you, know, you always have to do that no matter what, but that can't be right because if it was, then uh, what if uh, like the categorical imperative clearly 
forbids lying, but you know, what if, um, what if they're like a murderer comes to your door looking for his, you know, looking for his victim and, you know, and he's like hiding inside somewhere, are you really going to say that, you know, you should, you should tell him the truth. And um, Kant in a, uh, in a short essay, that's like super embarrassing to, to everybody who likes him, uh, which, um, you know, I probably do more than my use of that quote at the end would make it seem, but they have, uh, but uh, says, yeah, that's right. Right. Like you, uh, <laughs> you can't lie to the, uh, to the murderer at the door. Uh, and he's got some, you know, moves that he makes there, but I mean, that's the, that's the core of his answer. And, you know, that's, that's insane. Um, but so, and I think that there's even some, you know, I mean, without going as far as Kant is there about the murder at the door, there's something to that if we're just talking about individual morality, you know, personal virtue that um, that we don't judge people just by the consequences of their actions. You know, we 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 care about people's motives certainly. We uh, we care about you know character, um, but politics certainly should not be like that. You know, is 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 the uh, is the point then? You know, making it at the end there, right? I mean that like, you know, so. I, juxtapose the you know the Kant line again he's not directly talking about political action there but you know but um you know but juxtapose the idea of like treating radical politics the way that Kant is talking about the goodwill with you know what Marx and Engels said in thesis on Feuerbach right you know philosophers will interpret the world the point is to change it that um you know if you're serious about changing the world then you have to act and um like it's not just just sort of having all the right positions in the abstracts doesn't doesn't do anything, right? You know, you 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 have to have approached this with a with a different with a different mindset, and um and it and it I, I should say like you know sometimes I think some of what I say in the book could come off to people like oh so like we should just be total utilitarians about this. There's like nothing that like might have good effects that you know that you you wouldn't do on principles well no i don't didn't say that right you know like you you can you can have lines of principle but if you see a line of principle every three feet right you know you're you're probably doing something wrong that so like uh when you start thinking about the kinds of examples that i'm talking about in the book like um when um you know like uh like the joe rogan one right that uh, that when joe rogan endorses bernie sanders uh sort of endorses him he does it in a very joe roganish you know mm-hmm. way uh you know sounds sort of affably stoned and it's like oh yeah no, i think i'll vote for bernie you know uh but um he when he does that and then the bernie campaign you know clips it out clips you know clips it and tweets out the clip um and all these people got mad at him, which, you know, I mean, in fact, this, I don't think, I don't think this had become public um, when I wrote the book, but I mean, subsequent reports say that that's like, like, like AOC got really mad about that. And, you know, and, and, uh, and was, um, and, and that like sort of started to distance her, you know, from, from the campaign. And that seems just beyond crazy to me. Cause if you want to say, yeah, there are things that might be good for the cause or whatever that you wouldn't do because it's a matter of principle. Okay, sure, right? We can probably come up with some plausible examples of that. But I don't think any of those are going to involve comedians or podcasters 
Um, in fact, I think I could just end the sentence there, right? I don't think any of those are going to involve comedians or podcasters, right. <laughs> like regardless of regardless of where the sentence uh, the sentence goes goes from there. Uh, and it and it just you know it, it just seems it just seems crazy to me that people can't make like really obvious distinctions. Like you can, um, do I think that uh, anti discrimination laws? should include gender identity. Yeah, absolutely, I think that. Do I think that, um, do I think that DSA meetings need to start out with uh, like half an hour of everybody ritualistically saying their pronouns? No, right? Like that, that's, you know, those are compatible, right? You know, like, and, and it, it seems like, it seems like the refusal to sort of see those, you know, there were sort of insistence on seeing no on one as a betrayal of yes, you know, no on two is a betrayal of yes on one is uh, is a symptom of of these kinds of pathologies of, of powerlessness, right? I mean, do you actually want to make what you're saying palatable to the broadest possible group of people, um, in which case sort of insisting that everybody does exactly the same cultural signaling that you do is probably a bad idea? Or, you know, or do you... Um, is all that matters. Yeah, I mean, you used the phrase self-expression earlier, and I mean that—that's that seemed like—is this just an exercise in self-expression? You know, here's the kind of guy I want to be. Here's how I see the world. Here are things that I can do that make it clear that I'm that kind of guy, and I see the world that way. And that just seems incredibly unhelpful for the purposes of actually, you know, for example, getting everybody healthcare. Correct. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I want to talk about another of the uh, things you list as a pathology of powerlessness. So um, neo-anarchists, I guess that would kind of go in uh, under what we were just talking about. Basically, people who have this kind of cool detachment and don't really expect to actually um, get power and, and do anything with it. Um, another one that you talk about is this kind of HR mindset, which I, I think is one of the, the cleverest observations about, uh, you know, kind of call out cancel culture. And so maybe talk a little bit about what you meant there with the connection between the HR, you know, worldview, basically. Yeah. So what I said earlier about um, how I think that this stuff has multiple sources and that sort of pathology of powerlessness aspect is the one that I played up in the book. But, um, you know, there are also other things that you could say here that I think are accurate. One of them um is what I was kind of alluded to there, which has to do with the class composition of um, of the American left, and you know a lot of the Western left in general. I mean, this is a this is a huge problem, uh, not just in the United States, but in lots of places. Uh, that um, you know the fancy term is uh, class dealignment, right? Having uh, the having sort of the traditional parties or equivalents. Right of uh, of the working class not really be um, populated, you know, by the working class, right. and, and in particular, I think what we're really talking about, especially the example I know the best, which is the U.S., is a left that, to a great extent, is made up of people who come from what we can like loosely call professional class kinds of backgrounds. Um, and yeah, if, if you want to be a finicky Marxist about it, that's not a class understood in terms of relationship to the means of production, but I'd also gently suggest that you know what I mean. And, uh, and that um, people, so people who either um, 
either are sort of um, downwardly mobile that they that like maybe they, they come from that kind of family, but you know they, they can't really find that kind of job themselves or uh, maybe they can find that job, but the nature of the job is self changing, uh, which is a story that plays out in a lot of different fields, things that are sort of traditional middle class careers like academia and journalism uh, have become, you know, you could roughly say like proletarianized or, you know, certainly much more precarious. Um, there are a lot of people running around like, I don't know, teaching uh, four classes at four different, four different campuses as an adjunct and they, they don't have, they don't have employer health insurance or, you know, the, um, I, <laughs> I, um, I'm in a position to know, what a lot of uh, what a lot of magazines uh, pay these days for articles, and it's you know not very much, right? You could be stringing together a lot of that, and uh, and not be making anything like a middle class income. And the result of some of this stuff has, you know, and I mean this is a long term thing. I think that we could go back to like the new left in the sixties and seventies, as sort of the left moving to the campuses. Uh, so it it's not caused by one thing but certainly i think those economic trends help contribute to a lot of people from these downwardly mobile professional class kinds of backgrounds um being attracted to the left which is a good thing I, you know I, I want i want people who are facing economic precarity to like seek left-wing policy solutions to to their problems that that's that's uh that's something that should be strongly encouraged so i think it's a good thing when you know whatever some um like when uh you know slate or whatever uh unionizes and i think it's a good thing uh if it's it's a good thing if people from these kinds of backgrounds become socialists but it does still cause a lot of problems and i think that part of that has to do with uh bringing in habits and the sort of way of looking at the world a way of looking at personal interactions and a way of thinking about what social justice even means uh bringing it from the sort of professional worlds they come from into the left, uh, importing it into the left. So I think if you look at the way that people in a lot of sort of middle-class career paths um, will weaponize identity politics, certainly to, uh, to attack each other, um, will, I mean, you can find examples of what I'm talking about. Like, it seems like once every three weeks, there's some like major blow up at a liberal institution that you know is along these lines, right? I, I I'd be very surprised if anybody listening didn't know, you know, didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, so um, that's and then so it's not shocking, right? That if if people who come out of this this milieu, right, like come to, um, you know, come into to left organizations or left activist spaces, they will they'll act that way. That they that you know they'll sort of bring in this this professional class sort of mainstream liberalism where what's happened in practice this is the kind of thing that like Adolf Reed talks about all the time or for that matter on the you know on the politically softer side uh, Thomas Frank and his uh, his book uh, listen liberal yeah. is all about this to a great extent that it's this way of thinking about what social justice means that's not really about raising the floor for everybody it's really about um, helping people burst through glass ceilings that it's, you know, it's like making sure that the best and the brightest from every group can, uh, can rise to, uh, to the top. And so there's, 
if you have that conception, it makes sense that you're going to spend a lot of time wonder, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time sort of analyzing small personal interactions through that lens. Cause that's how that stuff plays out. That uh, that's like, Oh, are you, you know, are you not supporting, you know, people from such and such group as they're, you know, as they're, as they're trying to, to advance themselves. Uh, and, and I think, and I think that the sort of oftentimes in professional environments, the, yeah, that like the human resources department or the DEI office or whatever, right. These, these things are the enforcers of, uh, of, of that, like very moralized, individualized, you know, conception of, uh, of social justice. And so it's maybe unsurprising when um, in various contexts, organizationally, or just on Twitter or whatever, you know, you get these, these call outs that uh, the nicer ones, I think non-coincidentally sound a lot, you know, like a, uh, like an email from HR, you know, well, we noticed that you did such and such, you know, but that's, that's very, that, you know, that's very problematic. You should, you should look at our policy about this. Yeah, there is something very um, bureaucratic about it. And, and I, I think the one connection I thought was the most illuminating was the way that you complain to some about someone indirectly, right? There's this kind of like, there's this kind of Yelp review narc feel to it. And uh, I think that that's just totally, that, that really nails it in terms of, um, you know, oh, this person, you know, uh, tweeted this 10 years ago, but you don't tell that person directly. Like you, you know, you tell some, you tell salon or something and then it blows up and all of a right. sudden you, you wake up the next day and you're a racist. You're like, wait, what happened? <laughs> so, right, right, right. Um, so yeah, that, I think that the HR, uh, the kind of corporatizing mindset infiltrating its way into the left, I think is a, is a brilliant um, observation there. Um, what were you? Uh, what did you mean when you talked about leftists reading too many dead revolutionaries? Uh, oh, did yeah. you embellish that? Sure. Uh, well, to be clear, I'm all for reading them, uh, but I think I think what I I think what I was saying in the line you're quoting is that there is a problem with um, American leftists. To be fair, much more so like 20 years ago, but even now, right? Uh, basing like getting their political perspectives from you know i don't know like reading something that like trotsky wrote in 1938 yeah, i was just of, gonna say trotsky too i don't know why that came to mind yeah well it's a i think maybe a historically important example in some uh you know in some parts of the american left but the uh uh yeah that uh you know getting their getting their political perspective from that much more so than from any kind of grounded analysis of the class struggle that's actually happening in the country that they live in. Uh, so I think certainly people, you know, one manifestation of this would be uh, people who, uh, you know, people who have this sort of perspective that it's like really, really important that uh, that you you don't know you don't vote for for Democrats. You vote for you know whatever um, you know third party effort, uh, which is I, I think in a lot of ways I think is really based on an analysis of what parties even are that doesn't really make sense in the American context. You know, it's 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 sort of imported from people who are at best thinking about Western European parliamentary systems, if not like, you know, czarist Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, cause it, I mean, it's ambiguous, but I mean, in, in America, I think in practice, uh, you know, there's, there's no such like 
there's no such thing as a, as a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. People talk that way sometimes, but like in a literal sense, that doesn't exist. Uh, there's, there's, there's no way to join or be, you know, uh, be expelled or anything like that. Um, there are ballot lines. There are sort of political machines that are associated with those ballot lines. And you know, there's room for reasonable disagreement about how, how people to the, you know, who are way to the left of those political machines should relate to all of that. And, you know, like tactically or strategically, but like, you know, you could always kind of tell when somebody's sort of, you know, dusting off um, the, uh, like the sort of tome written by somebody who's probably a European and probably, you know, died decades before they were born and, and sort of copying and pasting their, uh, their political strategy from that, or what they say is their political strategy. I think in practice, oftentimes there just isn't one that's associated with this stuff. It's to, you know, there's a, there's a way of talking about politics uh, that's associated with that. I don't know that's really a strategy, but so that would be one example. The example is I was talking about in the book had to do with, um, with Antifa um, and the sort of idea that it's like a really important thing that uh, lefties spend their time uh, like confronting in the streets uh, people who are actually fascists or, you know, uh, I'm not even sure if I would actually think of those people as actually being fascists. I think that those are like in a lot of cases, I think, you know, I think they're sort of fascism reenactors, but, um, but whatever, you know, people who, people with far right views that, you know, that they, they think sure. it's like really important to, um, to like actually like go out in the streets and confront people with, uh, with far right views. And I mean, I'm not even good. I don't even want to go so far as to say that there's absolutely no place for that, but it just, you know, I, I think in a sort of limited defensive way, sometimes maybe sure, but like, um, but the whole obsession, right. People whose like politics are, are based around, um, anti-fascism right that they, they really like that that phrase and that's the sort of you know they and they have this sort of obsession with the far right that like really informs um how to think about politics it, it just seems really strange to me because again when you know we can go back to trotsky um so when like trotsky is writing stuff about the rise of uh, fascism in germany and he's um and he's talking about um you know, people fighting in the streets and stuff. I mean, this is, this is a time and place where there are like real mass, like, you know, like, like street battles where people are dying going on. Right. You know, not right. like what, not like one person over the course of five years being hit with a car, but like people having, um, but people uh, really, uh, you know, duking it out of the streets. And this is a time when like you have, um, you know, groups like the SS, the SA, are going around like busting up union halls and, you know, murdering like, you know, communist organizers in the back alley and stuff like that and, and, and getting away with it because the, uh, it was in, in a situation of instability, you know, the, the state was not, you know, even before they took over the state was not, you know, it was not totally unsympathetic to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like, and it, it just could not be more unlike the United States in, uh, in 2022, right. because like fascism and, and I mean, ironically, and this, I mean, I'm, this case of giving people shit for like 
copy and paste their perspective from dead revolutionaries, but like, I don't know, read the dead revolutionaries more carefully, right? Fascism, the classical Marxist analysis you get from somebody like Trotsky or Clara Zetkin or whoever is fascism is something the ruling class resorts to as a sort of last resort to fend off like losing everything and like a socialist revolution, um, which is pretty much what it takes for that to be resorted to. Because honestly, it's incredibly destabilizing. I mean, look at the relevant history. Uh, And so I look at the U.S. in 2022 and it's like, man, I, we have like a 6.3% rate of private sector unionization. Um, There's, you know, the sort of the threat of, of mild social democracy was, was successfully fended off by the democratic establishment to 2020. Uh, I don't think these guys are that worried that, you know, that there's right. going to be a communist revolution. They'll lose everything. Uh, I, I, I think that, you know, I mean, when, um, yeah, I mean, when companies do need to actually resort to like strike breakers to, you know, to bust some heads, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do it with some nice respectable security company. They don't need to tarnish themselves by associating themselves with the proud boys. Uh, and, uh, and so the whole, the whole obsession just seems really marginal and counterproductive to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that, yeah, Antifa and some groups have the kind of very wildly inflated uh, sense of their their role as if they're kind of um, kind of miming the heroic actions of these German mm-hmm. interwar communists. And um, it's like it, that you're not in the same position at all, no. really. Um, and I also think it, it really, um, it, it maybe is in some cases an excuse to not have to, you know, engage in the less romantic um, uh, components of politics, which is, you know, the prosaic part of knocking on doors and persuading people. I mean, that's very unsexy, yeah. right? But but throwing stuff at, at Nazis is is definitely uh, extremely cool. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it, to, to, totally. Like it's it's, I, I'm, yeah, like you know, people people love that old Rosa Luxemburg quote about it, socialism or barbarism. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's some sense in which that's true right now, but it's, it's more like, you know, just the sort of regular dismal barbarism of having an incredibly unequal society that, you know, chews people up and spits them out in lots of ways. Not, you know, not the like sexy, exciting barbarism of like fascists at the gates or, you know, um, the world's about to end. There's, you know, any of that stuff. Mm. Uh, and I had a, a comment on just a thought on the the effects of these um, powers of or sorry pathologies of powerlessness with the way it kind of comes off not just to um, uh, I guess I'm thinking of the way it comes off to the public in that it also dovetails quite well with what kind of culture war right wingers are saying about the left right so it, it, the more that the left does these kinds of things. Um, the, the worse it looks and then people like Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens and these kind of pseudo intellectual um, kind of thought leaders um, are just basically they've got more and more material all day long to build their brands with and so it really just kind of emboldens um, the kind of the right wing eco uh, kind of media ecosystem in a way that's it's just totally unhelpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I, I just look, there's just a very small example of this a few weeks ago. I, I wrote about for the Daily Beast that uh, there's something called, uh, there's this convention called Podcast Movement. Um, 
you know, I'm a person who has a podcast, listens to podcasts. I have a really hard time imagining who goes to a podcasting convention, but whatever, put that, put that aside. Um, and uh, the, uh, the Daily Wire at Ben Shapiro's company had, uh, had a booth there, which, you know, makes a certain amount of sense because this isn't like a, con- you know, conventions affiliated with a certain political faction. It's just a general thing for podcasting and because we live in a hellscape, uh, the Daily Wire hosts some of the most popular podcasts uh, in, uh, in the country. And Shapiro himself briefly showed up and um, like walked around the hall a little bit, shook a couple of hands, had a couple of people ask him to pose for pictures, and then he left. That's, that's what, that's what uh, happened. And apparently some attendees were like outraged that, uh, that he was there, uh, you know, because... Um, you know, I don't know. I guess he's so harmful uh, because of because of his you know his many terrible reactionary views, which of course he has. But um, I would also suggest that anybody who actually feels harmed by uh, you know seeing Ben Shapiro, not the world's <laughs> most physically intimidating guy, uh, walk around smiling and shaking hands. I question how they get through day to day life, but. Um, but like the and like they actually they had the organizers because again it's this kind of HR mindset that people uh, you know that it's like oh oh well we got to do damage control right you know people are mad uh, did this like Twitter thread where they were apologizing for 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 you know, I guess letting him you know like show up uh, at at all and of course immediately um, the Daily Wire puts out this little video where uh, I don't think the production values are that good or whatever, but like the, the, um, the premise of the video was like what, what anybody would have done, which was like uh, they, had, they had somebody reading out the tweets and like cut that together with pictures of like him like standing, having his picture taken with some old lady <laughs> who's happy to meet him. Uh, and, uh, you know, we apologize for the harm caused by this, whatever. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's so... Um, it's so bad, right? It, it, it feeds so, it feeds so obviously into, um, into the branding exercise, which is, uh, you know, for all these guys, it's like, uh, a look at me I'm this like brave truth teller who has this, this dangerous insights to offer that, you know, people are afraid of, uh, which is, I mean, certainly in Shapiro's case, unfortunately I read his, his book uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, right side of history, how reason and moral purpose made the West great. Uh, and in um, like the cover copy of this book is all about how he was at like UC Berkeley three years before that. And like how many cops they needed to, for like security at the event or whatever. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Shapiro is happy to have some more recent material for, uh, for the cover of, uh, of, his, uh, of his new book that really could not have worked out better for him. But it, it just seems like a lot of people just don't think about this stuff at all or are actually even actively hostile to thinking about it. Um, that like it feels like some sort of stupid little victory maybe even to like have him, you know, I don't know, not be there or, or have um, or or at least get an apology for <laughs> for the fact that he uh, he was there, and you see this even with people who are willing to engage, which is um, I mean that's the first step. Uh, that that's certainly better than the people who you know I I had I actually had uh, somebody who will remain nameless, uh, but is a is an editor of a small left wing magazine was like mad at me uh, publicly for uh, uh, for for debating 
Charlie Kirk last year, and I think in their tweet about this, they used the word uh, platforming, right? That, that I was like, platforming Charlie Kirk, if I remember the tweet correctly. And, um, and of course, that's, I mean, in itself, like mathematically, that's just wrong. Um, you know, Charlie Kirk spoke the last Republican National Convention. I don't think his big break was talking to me, but, uh, but like also, um, like it, it just has this model where like, uh right-wing ideas are like this virus that you need to contain you know before they can they can get out and you know infect the populace which could not indicate more insecurity with with what you know you think and your ability to persuade ordinary people and it's also just crazy because you know you're talking about people who have far more influence in the world than we do right that they, uh, that like that doesn't that just doesn't work so it's like but even when people are willing to engage which is the first step i think their idea of the right way to go about it makes really little sense for the same reason that they're not thinking about, like, they're not just doing the basic thing of like, okay, thinking, thinking about how this would register to anybody outside of their, their bubble. Right. So, so like when I did that debate with Kirk, I mean, the previous one he'd done was with this comedian named Ben Glebe who, um, who did this like gimmicky thing where he had, he brought this picture of a dolphin fetus and uh, he was like, Oh, you, are you telling me that that's a human life? And Charlie's like, yeah, it's like, ha I got you. That's a dolphin fetus. And it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's funny, but it's also like, what's that going to do for like anybody who, uh, who's right. not already totally on your side, right? Like what people, what it seems like a lot of people on the left really want, even in the context like that is to, is for you to like own people in ways that are satisfying to them. Mm. And, you know, I get it. That, that stuff's fun to watch, but it, it also just makes no sense at all. If the goal is to, um, if the goal is to, is to appeal to anybody who who's outside of your, your bubble, because like anybody who, like anybody who's watching that thing, I mean, I guess unless they're like hate watching, in which case you don't have to worry about, you know, like if you don't have to worry about convincing them, but like everybody else, you know, who's watching that thing, it's like, look, even if they're not a hardcore fan, even if there's somebody who's just kind of giving it a chance, you know, there's somebody who's like genuinely persuadable one way or the other, like they wouldn't be watching that if they didn't basically like Charlie Kirk. So like if the, you know, if like what you take the, your chance to do is basically get up there and tell him to go fuck himself, then like, that's not going to move the needle with anybody. Definitely. Yeah. Another thing I think is so inimical too about that behavior is it, it also is sort of the same thing, but slightly different is that it, it just uh, validates the idea that left-wing politics is simply that kind of, uh, you know, call out um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of puritanical humorless type of online stuff. And, you know, it's kind of something that drives me up a wall these days where people say, you know, the left this and the left that. And what they mean by left is, you know, just people on yeah, Twitter right. yelling and they, they don't mean at all uh, a single payer healthcare system. They don't mean, uh, you know, raising yeah. wages. So it's like they, they've, they've started to confuse the left for only that kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, obnoxious culture war stuff. And we're just, again, in the same way with the, the right winger culture warriors, we're kind of just giving them ammo to yeah, continue totally. on that wrong, that wrong road. Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to, if, yeah, I mean, if there's a certain kind of like performative cultural liberalism that just annoys the shit out of most people on contact with it, and, 
you know, I mean, that's almost something that's like, if, if you don't accept that premise, I just don't even know what to do. I mean, like that, that just, that's just true. Um, and anything to the left of like being a conservative is like in the minds of anybody to whom conservatism might, conservatism might be attractive is associated with that. And, right. uh, right. and so, yeah, why would you, why would you reinforce that association if you, if you didn't have to? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wonder if we could switch gears for a second and talk a little bit about higher education, um, yeah. the issues that are going on there. Um, so student debt, um, I, yeah. know your, I know your position's on it. You've written a few articles in Jacobin about it. Um, and so obviously we'd, we'd like the debt to be wiped out. Um, yep. We also think uh, higher education should be fully subsidized in the way K through 12 education is subsidized. However, uh, I haven't heard any arguments on the left about um, addressing the problem of why college is so expensive in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. Because even if we were to, you know, initiate those policies that I just mentioned, you know, tomorrow morning, we'd mm -hmm. still be in the same place where it has this like wildly ridiculous, you know, uh, you know price tag. And uh, I saw some uh, chart the other day, someone tweeted it and it said something like, if we didn't change anything at all, we wiped out all the debt tomorrow in another like 15 years, we'd be back to where it is now or something crazy. So um, I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. how do we address the, the, uh, why is it so expensive in the first place? Let's maybe sure. Start there. Sure. Well, I guess I'd want to separate out whether it's expensive um, to the student or their family, as the case may be, right? Or uh, or whether it's just expensive in the sense that like whoever's paying for it uh, is is spending a lot of of money on it. I mean, the same way with like when we're doing like country to country comparisons with healthcare costs, we can you know what we're doing is we're you know, we're just adding up all the money that's spent by whoever is spending it, whether it's like individuals at point of service or, mm. you know, it's like a government budget line or whatever it is. Right. So like, so I think that the reason I want to make that separation is in the immediate sense, look, if we did everything that you just said, would we be back in the same situation 15 years? Well, um, it depends what, it depends what we're doing. Uh, now, if we're um, if we're just if we're just wiping out debt, then sure, right? If, if that's all we're doing, then yeah, I mean, of course that because you know we're gonna keep shaking down more people for for you know tuition they can't afford, and they're gonna keep taking out loans, and you know why why wouldn't it be the same in fifteen years? That's that's clearly true. But if if what we're doing is actually treated, I mean, you used the word subsidized earlier, which is a little ambiguous. But I mean, if we're actually treated at like K through twelve higher, you know, K through twelve public education, then um, then we wouldn't be in the same situation, at least as far as the students go, because because nobody you know nobody owes any high school debt, um, at least if they went to a public school, uh, and uh, and nobody would owe any college debt either, because if you're saying we're gonna uh, get rid of, um, you know, we're going to get rid of tuition. We're going to finance this the way that, you know, we finance K through 12 public education or the way that we finance, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, you know, that we're going to do it. Um, you know, we're, it's, it's going to be a taxpayer funded public good. Uh, then, then we wouldn't just by definition, we wouldn't be in the same situation because we wouldn't have individuals who owed all this debt. Now you can still say, uh, if you make that distinction I made earlier, you can still say, well, we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be in that situation, but maybe like what we as a society would be paying for higher education would still be way too much. That, That's like, what we, I mean, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, that's fair, right? So I think, uh, so I guess I'd say a couple of things about that. One is the two issues aren't totally unrelated because uh, it's the same way um, that, um, the same way that in single payer healthcare systems uh, or fully nationalized healthcare systems, uh, the um, there aren't um, like the actual like the actual costs within the system are way lower because if you have one entity paying, then pretty much what you can charge is what that entity is willing to to pay for. Uh, and so I think if uh, if public universities uh, were just living off of um, you know, what they got, I mean, other than like whatever you can raise for the alumni or whatever, right, you know, but like pretty much, right, that they're just living off of, um, living off of like normal public funded sources, then I think they would have to, um, I think they might discover very quickly that you don't need the like 53rd vice president of like who, who can even keep track of what any of these people's jobs are supposed to be, right, you know, that you could, you could get rid of a lot of that. And you know, I think that would probably be a good thing uh, if they uh, if they did. Um, that you know, I mean, a lot of and a lot of what the I mean, if you think about the difference between American universities and like universities in a lot of Western European countries, um, you know, you can tell that a lot of it's about like there's a lot of junk that goes along with higher education in the U.S. because you have to like find some way to to make what you're trying to sell essentially. To students and their families stand out from what other universities are trying to sell so it's like do you actually need to you know do you actually need to have the you know i don't know climbing gym or whatever the right, university yeah. right you know it's like maybe not right you know that that and again that doesn't i mean i'm not you know if you can make it work fine have the climbing gym but like i don't you know i i, w- I wouldn't see that as a tragedy if a lot of the stuff other than actual education that universities did had to be stripped down when they were living off of a smaller budget. The one other thing I would say about this uh, is like, look, I do think that education, not just K-12, but also college is, you know, exactly the kind of thing that should be provided as a public good. Uh, I think that, you know, I think that somebody who, you know, we all, only get to live the one time. And I think that you should, I think that like getting to spend a few, a few years of your life focusing on reading and thinking and try to figure out what you want to do with your life and all that stuff. I, I don't think that should be, um, I think that should be available to everybody, you know, regardless of, uh, of, of financial means. And I, I don't think anybody should be made to, to pay for, for the experience. But I also think that it's a little unfortunate that even though, like what I would have liked, you know, Biden to do would, would have been vastly more expansive than what he actually did. Uh, it's still a little bit unfortunate that it happened the way that it did. Cause it's like, if the only people that you're helping uh, are people who went to college, then I think that makes it, um, I think that makes it like real easy for the right wing to demagogue. Uh, I think that, you know, ideally, I mean, whatever, you know, I mean, if, if, it's something I support and I'd rather have it happen like this than not have it happen at all. But like, I think ideally the way that student debt would have been forgiven would have a been in combination with, um, you know, making, making public higher education tuition freeze to get rid of the 15 year problem. But B it would have been in combination with, um, 
it would have been paired with with helping people out with other kinds of debt that uh, that you don't have to go to college uh, to have like you know medical debt would be an obvious example i think there's actually a slight majority of americans who who owe at least at least some medical debt um there's i think um you know, I think there, I think there are probably a lot of other examples, but I mean, that's the, that's the most, that's the most obvious one, right? Cause like, if you're, cause otherwise, you know, if the only, um, if the only kind of debt you're helping people get out from the burden, you get it from under is one that, you know, by definition, you had to go to college uh, to, uh, to get, then that's, um, then I think you're really opening yourself up to, oh, you're, you know, the, the only people you care about are people who went to college, which you know feeds into a lot of the culture war stuff we were talking about earlier in a really unfortunate way. Yeah, I was um, just listening to Adolf Reed's uh, Class Matters podcast, mm-hmm. and they were talking about whether or not workers have lost faith in, in government. And one issue that got brought up was how toxic um, means testing is because it uh, kind of creates divisions within that don't need to be there. And so some people mm-hmm. are, are kind of resentful that one person was um, just barely poor, poorer than they were. And so they could get something right. that they couldn't get. And so it sounds like what you're saying with um, forgiving the debt is it it's somewhat in the same domain in that, you know, we're, we're favoring some people, but not others, even though everyone's kind of in the same boat in the sense right. of being un, in the water or underwater. So yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, you could, you could do, yeah, you could have a, I mean, again, I know it would have had to be under really different political conditions or whatever, but I mean, like, just, just, you know, if we're going to fantasize about this, like, um, you know, you could do the like omnibus, you know, bill where you, uh, you wipe out student debt, but you also wipe out medical debt and you also wipe out all the interest on everybody's credit card debt. And, you know, like you could, you know, you could do, you could do a lot at the same time and make it clear that it's like, this is, you know, this is part of a much broader effort to, you know, to help a lot more people. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I wanted to be mindful of your time, Ben, but I do want to just uh, spend a couple more minutes on your your Hitchens book before we yeah, wrap sure. up so I can promote it for you. So um, yeah, Christopher Hitchens, the subtitle is What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters came out earlier this year. Um, Hitchens was, for me, I would say, I mean, and still in many ways, uh, you know, kind of a hero. I think um, mm-hmm. when I first you know, started digging into him, I was, I think a lot of people uh, who were in that position, I... Uh, was you know, omnivorously consuming every single YouTube video that was out there because there's you know something incredibly gratifying about watching him just you know skewer his, his yeah, sure. in a debate and um, but yeah just an absolutely uh, brilliant polemicist and, and writer and orator. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what was your reason for uh, kind of resuscitating him in the context of the left? Yeah, so my hope in writing the book, so it was time to come out. I guess just after the uh, the ten year anniversary of his death, which was kind of the occasion for it, and my hope was that uh, enough time had passed for a lot of more people to be able to have some some distance mm-hmm. on him in different ways, uh, and certainly as far as the left goes, that um, you know because he took some very bad positions in in the last ten years, I think that when they um, when some of those fights were still raw, uh, then, uh, that I think, um, you know, people who, you know, you know, were rightly disappointed by some of those bad positions, uh, you know, 
like we're more much more likely to to just write him off and you know and and since obviously i think he's a really interesting figure and you know there's bad there but there's also a lot of good and there's this stuff that's worth grappling with um i i wanted to do a couple things and one of them was to try to introduce maybe a new audience who if they were familiar with him at all it would have been through that era probably with you know with those debate videos you're talking about mm-hmm. um you know, which when most of that came out. So in other words, it would be, um, they'd be familiar with him from the era in which, uh, you know, the last 10 years of his life, 2001 to 2011, particularly the last few of those years, which is when those religion debates were going on, but it's also what he was taking, uh, you know, some of his worst foreign policy positions, obviously. And uh, so like when he was on Fox News, it's funny because depending on the appearance and sometimes a little bit of each, but you know, it would be either as the guy they're bringing on to be the, the smart guy with a British accent to tell them they're right about the foreign policy stuff, mm-hmm. or they would bring him on as like the atheist punching bag to like get mad at for culture war points. Um, you know, when like the iconic, most iconic, what I think is what he was on uh, Hannity and Combs after Jerry Falwell died. Oh, he yeah. said that, that <laughs> Falwell had, uh, had been so full of shit that if they'd given him that, they could have buried him in a matchbox. Uh, <laughs> I was really pissed off that I couldn't come up with a good way to work that into the book, but it just, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a natural place to put that. But, um, but yeah, uh, so if they're familiar with him at all, it's from that era. And obviously there's a lot to say about that era, but like one of the goals in the book was to try to, introduce an audience who was only familiar with him from that era to this whole body of work that he had done in the 30 years before um, 2001, 1971 to 2001. Uh, and I think there's a lot of really good stuff there. And I think there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people on the left would get something out of reading. And so that was definitely one of the goals. Uh, another one of the goals was just that, I, I mean, this is kind of what you're talking about a minute ago. I, you know, I'm obviously somebody who's very interested in debates and debating, and I think he was probably better at that than just about anybody else in the sort of era that those have been captured on YouTube. And so, and also he was engaged in debates and polemics about a lot of subjects that I find it found interesting. And it's a, it's a good chance to explore a lot of those subjects uh, in more depth than I'd have reason to if I wasn't uh, writing about Hitchens. And then finally, I did want to address the, the what went wrong question. Uh, like, how is it that somebody who agreed with so many of our premises uh, ended up in, in such, a, such a bad place on, uh, on foreign policy in the final years? And, you know, and I, that's what I'm trying to answer in the last part of the book. And what is your take on uh, the thing, maybe say like the, the one thing that the left, uh, the positive thing about Hitch that the left should take away? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are a few things, but, um, but certainly, certainly Hitchens was exactly the kind of writer who is most frustrating but rewarding when he's on the wrong side of something um because because he's uh you know this is actually something i talked about at the very very end of the book uh that like it's weird to think about the fact that christopher hitchens wrote for slate 
in those last years because uh, I have a really hard time imagining um, reading anything in a publication like that now uh, where you would have the experience I have. I think you've probably had. I think a lot of a lot of people have when when they're reading Hitchens, which is that like they read him saying something where they completely disagree with what he's saying, but you sort of find yourself muttering under your breath, like, oh, damn, that's a good point, isn't it? You know, as you're, uh, as you're reading it, because it makes you think. And because uh, he, he brought this, you know, this wealth of historical and literary knowledge to it. He, he was this extremely clear writer in this way that made him, uh, made him good at sort of bringing out subtleties that other people would miss. And he, um, and so he was able to, to write in this really interesting, really engaging way where he'd sort of look at a topic from this weird right angle that, uh, that you wouldn't think about earlier, such that when he's on the right side, uh, as he was when he was writing about Henry Kissinger, as he is when he's writing about uh, Bill Clinton, uh, and uh, no one, no one left to lie to. It was a very subtly titled uh, book about the Clintons, um, or uh, when he was writing, you know, just just all those columns for the Nation in the eighties and nineties and all that. When he's on the right side, there's like nobody you'd rather have in your corner. But when he's on the wrong side, uh, he's maybe the most engaging wrong person to uh to uh to grapple with as you're as you're trying to figure it out because like that i have had to like before i uh before i had my own show i did like a a segment in the michael brooks show for a year called the debunk which was nothing but um like watching clips of the worst people in the world and like breaking down what was wrong with uh with what they were saying and uh and i've i've written tons of stuff that's like the prose equivalent of that and like i mean trying to break down like what like ben shapiro or charlie kirk thinks about something is like it's like taking out it's like taking out the garbage when you're really tired and you just want to go to bed it's like it's, it's a thing that you have to do so you'll do it uh, you know, because it's like, all right, these people have giant audiences. This is like politically necessary. You know, it's 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 like it's a civic duty. It, yeah, it's a civic duty, right? <laughs> but like, it's it's uh, it's it's a very unpleasant duty. Whereas, like, reading or watching Hitchens, even arguing for things that I think are completely wrong or that I think are kind of half wrong and half right, is is a pleasure. And it's uh, you know, and, and it's. You know, you actually enjoy it even when you even when you don't like his conclusions, and you're going to learn something from it even when you don't like his conclusions. And he's going to force you to make a better version of your argument. I think there's a lot of value in that in and of itself. Definitely, no, I totally agree. Well, Ben, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, where can people find you? I know you've got your website, just benburgess.com. Anywhere else you'd like people to go to to find your work? Uh, yeah. So. I guess, um, yeah, I mean, Jacobin is the, the main place. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess probably the Daily Beast number two in terms of like where you can find like the, the kind of day-to-day uh, political commentary. And uh, yeah, give them an argument on, uh, on YouTube and podcast feeds. And then uh, I guess I'd, I guess the only other shout out I would do is to buy any of these books that, uh, that we've been talking about. 
you can do any of those in any of the usual book buying places, but uh, there's a, uh, a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore uh, that uh, that uh, I has always been very supportive of uh, what I've been doing. Want to uh, you know want to help direct traffic to them if if, if at all possible. It's called Red Emma's, like the name Emma. Uh, so that's RedEmmas.org, and you can find all those books there. Awesome. All right, Ben. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the No Faction Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider subscribing. Thank you.